Welcome to Pick 6 Movies, where each season, we pick six different movies that fall under one common theme. This season, we're talking live from New York, all about the movie spinoffs from the seminal television series, Saturday Night Live. We give you some insight behind how, when, where, and why each movie was made. And on top of that, at no additional cost to you, you get a full review of the movie from me, Bo Ransdell, and my old pal, Chad Cooper. This is episode 5 of season 2, featuring the year 2000's The Ladies' Man. So, enough out of me, Chad's got a lot to tell you about this one, so let's get started. Welcome to Pick 6 Movies. The original cast of Saturday Night Live was known as the Not Ready for Primetime Players when the show debuted in 1975. The cast included Lorraine Newman, John Belushi, Jane Curtin, Gilda Radner, Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, and Garrett Morris. Seven performers total, three women and four men. Or to look at another way, six of them were white and one of them was black. Garrett Morris was the only minority cast member when the show debuted. Since then, there have been a total of 19 black performers on Saturday Night Live out of a total of 154 total performers, or around 12%, which is arguably not great, but it's better than any other minority representation in the cast. And Saturday Night Live's history as it relates to diversity of cast along racial lines, specifically when it comes to black performers, has been complicated to say the least from the inception of the show. Garrett Morris seemed to embrace the 1970s militant black persona contrasted against the other array of ragtag white performers. In one sketch in particular, he sang a song about how he was going to, quote, get me a shotgun and kill all the whiteies I see, end quote. Hey America, Welcome to 11.30 on Saturday nights. The cast as a whole didn't look as though they really belonged on television, and even by their own admission, they were not ready for prime time. Having Morris embrace a more casual, albeit at times passively volatile, point of view against the undeniable waspish quality of the original cast helped the show address, head-on, some racially charged issues from the start. Taking on issues of race was not a one-man job, and so the help of the most famous comedic voice in black comedy was asked to host the show in its debut season. Richard Pryor is one of, if not the best stand-up comic ever. And in the late 1970s, he was at the top of his game. David Henry and Joe Henry's book, Furious Cool, Richard Pryor and the World That Made Him, provide some details around Pryor's hosting the seventh episode of Saturday Night Live, and more specifically, one of the show's most racially charged sketches involving Richard Pryor and Chevy Chase. When Pryor was proposed as a potential host for Saturday Night Live, NBC refused to let the controversial comedian on live television, lest he let fly a barrage of swears and curse words to the sensitive ears of American TV audience. Now you may be thinking that in the context of the times, the selection of Pryor as host may seem a bit risky for live broadcast, but keep in mind that George Carlin hosted the first show ever, and things went fine. Lorne Michaels knew the importance of having Pryor on the show, 
and when executives balked at his hosting, Michaels walked off his own show in protest, something that he did quite often in the early days of the program. NBC finally agreed to let Pryor host the show, but only with a mandatory five-second delay in place to keep dirty words from getting in the ears of viewers lest they be spoken. Dave Wilson, Saturday Night Live's director at the time, later admitted he didn't know how to work the delay, and so the show just basically was live anyway. Pryor agreed to be on the show after some equally challenging negotiations on his side. These negotiations included the addition of Paul Mooney as his writer for the episode. If you don't know who Paul Mooney is, then shame on you, because the rest of this is so more satisfying with just a casual knowledge of the genius that is Paul Mooney. It turns out that Mooney had to go through what he saw as a condescending job interview before NBC would agree to hire him as a writer on Saturday Night Live, something that was going to happen anyway. As the air date of the episode got closer, everyone in the cast had a sketch with Richard Pryor. Belushi and Pryor were doing a samurai sketch. Jane Curtin interviewed Pryor as an author who liked his skin to see what it would be like to live as a white man. Lorraine Newman did a sketch based on The Exorcist with Pryor, and Dan Aykroyd had a military debriefing sketch with him. Gilda Radner did a running gag throughout the show where she consistently picked Pryor out of police lineups, and Garrett Morris, at Pryor's request, did Chevy Chase's standard pratfall to open the show. But Chevy Chase himself had no airtime with Pryor, and so Chase went to Paul Mooney to see what Mooney could do to help him out. And Mooney did help him out by writing a sketch born out of his interview with NBC to be a writer on Saturday Night Live. In the sketch, Chase would play a boss interviewing Pryor for a job. We later find out at the end of this sketch that the job is for a janitor position. Chase, as the white personnel interviewer, suggests some word association to test if Pryor, a black man, is fit for the job. The first words are innocent enough. Chase says, dog. Pryor says, tree. Chase says, fast. Pryor says, slow. Rain, snow. White, black. Bean, pod. Then Chase says, negro. Pryor responds, whitey. Now, if you've seen this sketch, you know where it goes from here, and more importantly, how it ends. This is easily one of the top five funniest sketches in the history of Saturday Night Live. If you've never seen it, what is wrong with you? Stop what you were doing right now and go watch it. Now, we'll all wait for you while you go do your homework. Mooney later wrote about this sketch, quote, It's like an H-bomb that Richard and I toss into America's consciousness. All that shit going on behind closed doors is now out in the open. There is no putting the genie back in the bottle. The N-word as a weapon turned back against those who use it has been born on national TV, end quote. Mooney said it was the easiest bit he ever wrote because he just spelled out what happened to him. Pryor's appearance lifted Saturday Night Live to new heights, and two weeks later, Chevy Chase was dubbed the funniest man in America by New York Magazine, which also predicted that Chase would be guest hosting The Tonight Show within six months. Now, The Tonight Show host Johnny Carson was less impressed and said of Chevy Chase's skills, he couldn't ad-lib a fart after a baked bean dinner. <laughs> baked bean dinner. You are correct, sir. I'm so sorry. How did we end up here? Let's get back to the subject at hand. Garrett Morris was both the first black performer as well as the first black male performer on Saturday Night Live. And Yvonne Hudson was the first female black performer on Saturday Night Live. 
But Yvonne was not the second black performer cast on the show, as one week earlier, Eddie Murphy joined the cast. Murphy's work on the show is legendary. His characters, his energy, his ability to work the live audience is unparalleled. He exploded on the show and upstaged everyone around him. His work on SNL propelled him to superstardom in feature films as a comedian and an actor in multiple genres of film, including action, drama, musicals, and animated works for both television and feature films. After Murphy's departure from the show, Denitria Vance arrived for a season. Damon Wayans also came on board and was seen to be the next Eddie Murphy, but Wayans never found the right characters or sketches on the show to really show off his talents. Wayans was fired from Saturday Night Live after appearing in a Miami Vice parody sketch that featured Mr. Monopoly from the board game. In the sketch, Wayans was playing a police officer and made the deliberate choice to defiantly play the character as a homosexual. Lorne Michaels fired Wayans on the spot, and in interviews years later after the incident, Wayans admitted that his portrayal in the sketch was misguided frustration with the show and felt that Michaels was right to fire him. Now, Wayans went on to star in the sketch show In Living Color, where he found a home to perform sketch comedy more in line with his talents as a comedian. Chris Rock and Ellen Cleghorn followed, each finding some limited success on the show. Cleghorn went on to star in a sitcom on the WB network called Cleghorn, which aired for one season. And Chris Rock went on to create some of the absolute best stand-up comedy of the last 20 years. Then came the arrival of Tracy Morgan and Maya Rudolph, two performers that broke new ground in their own brilliant ways. Tracy Morgan took his own brand of weird comedy and channeled it into characters like Woodrow, Astronaut Jones, and Brian Fellows. His persona found a second life in the Tina Fey sitcom 30 Rock, where Tracy Morgan played Tracy Jordan, a pseudo-caricature of himself during his time on Saturday Night Live. Maya Rudolph did everything on the show. Oprah, Beyonce, Maya Angelou, Donatella Versace. She was everything that makes a perfect SNL cast member. You just don't get any better than Maya Rudolph on this show. There were a few other performers that never really found much breakout success on Saturday Night Live. Jerry Minor, Dean Edwards, Finesse Mitchell all had short stints on the show. Jay Farrow proved to be a masterful celebrity mimic, but left the show with very little fanfare, as did Shashir Zamata. Currently, the cast of Saturday Night Live features more black performers than ever. Michael Che arrived at Saturday Night Live after a short stint with Comedy Central's The Daily Show. He was hired to be the first black anchor of Weekend Update. And currently, Leslie Jones continues to bring her brash brand of over-the-top comedy to SNL, along with newcomer Chris Redd. And then there's Kenan Thompson. Thompson started his career in sketch comedy on Nickelodeon's All That, which led to his own show, Keenan and Kel, which ultimately brought him to Saturday Night Live, where, in my humble opinion, he should stay until the show is canceled or his death as a very aged old man surrounded by his great-grandchildren and other loved ones. Keenan's portrayal of DeAndre Cole on What Up With That and his impression of Steve Harvey are enough to put him in the SNL Hall of Fame. Thompson, it should be noted, is now the longest-running cast member on Saturday Night Live. Thompson surpassed Daryl Hammond, who held the record before him, and Hammond claimed the title from Tim Meadows, who was on the show for 10 seasons. And it is Tim Meadows and his most famous character, Leon Phelps, the ladies' man, that is the focus of this episode. Meadows was born in Highland Park, Michigan, 
His mother was a nurse's assistant, and his father worked as a janitor. Meadows studied television radio broadcasting at Wayne State University. He cut his acting chops, like many SNL alumni, at the Second City Comedy Troupe, alongside future SNL cast member Chris Farley. Meadows was cast on Saturday Night Live in 1991 and stuck around until the year 2000. Meadows played a lot of people during his time on the show, including O.J. Simpson, Tiger Woods, Oprah Winfrey, Michael Jackson. However, the character most associated with Meadows is Leon Phelps, the ladies' man. Leon Phelps was a radio talk show host who saw himself as the ideal object of women's desires and the purveyor of sex advice to those in need. And Phelps is always seen with a glass of Quavassier. The popularity of the sketch was enough to prompt the real Monica Lewinsky to appear on Saturday Night Live, where Leon Phelps pretended to be President Bill Clinton, whereupon he reenacted three encounters with Miss Lewinsky and showed how he, the ladies' man, would have behaved in these situations. With the success of the late-night comedy sketch and producers with money to burn, Leon Phelps followed in the footsteps of Wayne Campbell, Stuart Smalley, Pat Riley and Mary Catherine Gallagher and made his way from the small screen to the big screen in 2000 with the movie adaptation of The Ladies' Man. The movie's director, Reginald Hudlin, had previously directed rap duo and hairstyle fashion trendsetters Kid and Play in the comedy House Party. He'd also helmed the Eddie Murphy romantic comedy Boomerang. Now, later in his career, he worked steadily directing and producing television, including the NAACP Image Awards and the Oscars. He was also a producer on Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained. The movie was written by Tim Meadows and SNL writing alumni Dennis McNichols and Andrew Steele. And it featured some of Meadows' fellow SNL performers, including Will Ferrell, Chris Parnell, Mark McKinney, And speaking of McKinney, his Kids in the Hall co-star Kevin McDonald shows up for a few minutes. SCTV comedy veteran Eugene Levy is there, along with Clary Starling impersonator and Academy Award winning actress Julianne Moore, plus the Millennium Falcon pilot and one-faced Harvey Dent thespian Billy D. Williams even made his way into this 84-minute opus. The ladies' man has a love interest of sorts, played by Karen Parson, Parsons' big break came from playing the impulsive, shallow, and extremely self-centered Hillary Banks, who was the oldest cousin to the fresh prince of Bel Air himself. Rocky Carroll plays the ex-fiancé of the primary love interest. Carroll had shown off his comedic abilities as the brother in the Fox sitcom Rock before, later in his acting career, he found himself solving crimes on the CBS crime show NCIS before branching out to the NCIS spinoffs in both New Orleans and Los Angeles. Speaking of solving crimes over on CBS, Sophia Milo shows up as one of the ladies' man's early romantic partners who herself would go on to solve crimes in CSI Miami. Now, despite all of these talented people, the movie didn't perform very well at the box office. The movie was released on October the 13th and came in fifth, far behind the top two movies, Meet the Parents and Remember the Titans. The movie's budget was around $24 million and brought in a little under $7 million. Sweater vest enthusiast and professional film critic Roger Ebert said of the movie, The Ladies' Man is yet another desperately unfunny feature-length spinoff from Saturday Night Live, a show that would not survive on local access if it were as bad as most of the movies it inspires. 
Despite the lack of success for the ladies' man, Tim Meadows went on to work steadily after leaving Saturday Night Live. He jumped on board with the post-Seinfeld vehicle for Michael Richards, aptly called The Michael Richards Show, and was part of the cast for its one and only season. Meadows showed up on numerous sitcoms, including The Office, According to Jim, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and The Bill Engvall Show. Meadows also appeared on The Colbert Report as the host favorite black Republican and entrepreneur P.K. Winsom. Meadows continues to perform stand-up on a regular basis, but is still most closely associated with Leon Phelps, the ladies' man. Meadows said in an interview that, much like Adam West, who played TV's Batman, that coming to accept that this character is part of your legacy is what allows you to live a much happier life. And so he has, and so he is. But what about the ladies' man? Can the optimistic charm of Leon Phelps carry a feature film? Is true love attainable for a man with such carnal desires? Wait, why did I forget to mention that Jonathan Witherspoon is in this movie? And wait, wait, is that the guy from the Fox sitcom Herman's Head in this movie? There's a lot going on here. Look, you know what? Let's just all sit back and relax. I'm going to light some candles. We're going to burn some incense. Let's dim down the overheads. We're going to take this nice and slow. So ladies and gentlemen, but mostly the ladies, I give you episode five, The Ladies' Man. And welcome to Pick 6 Movies. I am Chad Cooper, and joined as always with my co-host, Mr. Bo Ransdell. Hello. Uh, this episode, we are talking about Tim Meadows as Leon Phelps, the ladies' man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here's the thing I'm curious about, because I certainly have my own opinions of this movie, but when you had watched this ahead of me, and I, I think on the last episode even, I said... I had seen this movie a long time ago, but it doesn't really make much of an impression. And that's sort of how I feel about it now. Like, I, I watched this movie a couple of times recently, and it's still like, did I watch The Ladies' Man? Yeah, okay, I totally did. But you had suggested that this was almost its pat level of of terribleness. Which is a stink I still haven't gotten off of me yet. The the its pat musk still swirls in my nostrils a bit. And I think this movie is head and shoulders. Like, it's not even in in the ballpark of its pat terribleness. Here's why I put it in the same quadrant of its pat. The construct of this movie is absent. I don't know what the main character wants. I defy you to find the end of Act 1, Act 2, Act 3... It is just a mishmash of random shit that happens in the film. Let's just, let's jump into it. And I think maybe by the end of this, I'll see if I can convince you that this movie is only a step above Pat because Leon Phelps is a more likable character. Well, clearly. I think this movie, I know how much of a Doctor Who fan you are. Doctor what? (laughs) Right. There was a villain. Or a, a group of villains on Doctor Who called The Silence. And the gimmick of that villain was as soon as 
you turned away from them, you forgot they existed. And and so uh the you know, the whole bit of the episode was they had to like make marks on their arm to remind them that, oh my god, the silence is here. This is the cinematic equivalent of the silence, where if I am not actively viewing and or talking about the ladies' man, <laughs> it ceases to exist for me. <laughs> All right. Well, let me see if I can uh I can make a better impression upon you. And uh, by the end of this, hopefully you will have remembered that uh, at the very least we talked about it, even though you will feel like you never watched the movie. <laughs> right. I will listen to this episode again and be like, holy shit, I watched The Ladies Man like three <laughs> times in my life. The first thing I want to say out of the gate is that this movie is rated R. Everything else that we've seen uh, or will see in this season is rated PG-13. And there are... Like two, if you blink, you'll miss them. Gratuitous nudity moments. You do get to see um, a dick a little bit. If you look for it, you'll see it. So that's kind of fun. But uh -huh. this movie, if it was R, it should have been wall-to-wall, -wall, nipples, asses, full bush. I mean, just nudity everywhere. I still feel like this was a PG-13 movie waiting to happen where you have the one, like, just one of the guys tit shot, and that's kind of all you need. Another thing I want to say about this movie is that I feel like this entire motion picture should have been an origin story of Leon Phelps, how he became a radio host, how he got all of his sexual experience, why he loves Quavassier, and then they should have made this movie as the crappy sequel that just went straight to DVD. The Joe Dirt 2 of the, the ladies' man saga. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on board with that. So at the very beginning of the movie, um, we're in a radio station and there's this generic announcer giving financial news. And then we see, you know, Leon Phelps, kind of his, his hands as he comes in to prepare for his show. And he just brazenly comes in and just turns down the lights while this guy is talking and he's on the air. He hangs up a, a blacklight poster with the astrological signs featuring all of these different sexual positions. He places a bottle of Quavassier just like right in front of this other guy and then removes his bottle of water. And then they light incense. And all of this behavior is just the actions of a self-righteous prick. I would argue is the journey of his character in this movie, as such as it is. One of the things I wanted to note was that as the ladies' man is setting up for his call-in talk show, he lights incense. And this is a pretty small uh, radio station. And for anyone, you know, listening to, to our show and you've never smelled burning incense, I, I was trying to think how I could describe it to you. Like a best case scenario is that it would be like this awesome stank. And then kind of the worst case scenario is that it is just this headache inducing smoldering stick of shit. <laughs> it's like if patchouli farted in your face. <laughs> Is kind of incense, and it lingers like a hot fart in the face. So the ladies' man opens up much in the same way that um, Wayne's World it and it's Pat and Stuart saves his family open up, where we're really just doing the sketch from Saturday Night Live as part of the motion picture. Leon Phelps, you know, welcomes his audience to his show, The Ladies' Man. It's the you know the love line with all the right responses to your romantic queries. You know, he introduces himself and he says, you know, he's not a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but he has had sex with a lot of lowly bus station skanks as well as high class bus station skanks. So he's somewhat of an expert. And then he says he has a Ph.D. in Tang, 
which I'm guessing uh-huh. is of the, the Poon variety and not the astronaut breakfast drink. I actually got a laugh out of him saying, I'm not a therapist. I mean, it's kind of the Stuart Smalley gag of uh, I'm not a licensed therapist. But when he says, but I have done it to a lot of ladies. I like it when someone says, I have done it to it's a funny phrasing for me leon tells his audience that if you're not disgusting or freaky and you're under the age of 50 to give him a call so you kind of see where leon stands you know as far as what he's trying to do one of the things i noted was that leon phelps dresses like lionel jefferson or lamont sanford if there's like a hot date lined up or maybe uh i was thinking like a character from dragnet you know that jack webb would really give the shakedown to get the goods on a dope dealer or any other, I don't know, reference for anyone under the age of 45 would never get. It's like he came out of this time period, but the movie is is set in present day. I mean, he's got this gigantic afro. And as I watch the movie, it seems like it's almost cut from the cloth of the Austin Powers movies. I, I mentioned earlier that I feel like the movie should have been an origin story, but if not, I couldn't put my head around why does this character live from this time period that's 20 years ago, you know, as this came out, you know, in the late 1990s or early 2000s, that would it have made more sense if you had gone down the Austin Powers route where he's frozen and then, you know, defrosted and you, you're doing the fish out of water? you know, type scenario or put him in a time machine and send him forward, which I guess that's Austin Powers as well. But it didn't make any sense. Like the guy has progressed <laughs> with a sense of fashion. Like the world has moved as he has grown as an adult. He's just still dressing from 20 years ago. If it were a smarter movie, it might do something with that of, of sort of suggesting that he got stuck in that period of time after he got abandoned. And that's another thing that they never do anything with in this movie is the idea that he is is this orphan character and we'll get to his upbringing here in a minute but a lot of that stuff could have made this movie land with some sort of emotional heft instead it just ends up playing as a series of gags some of them work some of them actually i think this opening scene when the woman calls up and says that she wants to meet people and his advice is to go to a bus station sans underwear that's the key to meeting people he's you know he's like yeah i would be interested I agree that there are some some funny moments of him on the phone and, and we'll touch on, you know, those moments that do work. I want to address his producer, Julie, who is his I don't know if we want to say that she's his love interest, but th- the female who's in this. Right. The girl Friday, who is his, his partner that he once came on to, but is now his business partner more than any. I really struggle with trying to understand the relationship between these two, not only at the beginning of the movie, the middle and the end, but after watching it. Upon repeated viewings, it kind of reminded me a little bit of like the Joker and Harley Quinn. They're kind of into each other on this unspoken deeper level. They have interests that are outside of one another, but yet they're sort of joined at the hip. The question of their interest, like kind of as in a romantic relationship, seems to be beside the point. It didn't make any sense at all of why she's with him. She's like, oh, he's so charming. He's so funny. He's just a ding dong. Right. He's incompetent. Like when we see him answering these calls, the advice he gives is horrible and that's kind of the gag is you know he's telling people to go to a bus station with no underwear and julie is actually showing him complaints that he's received as he's talking about bonzing (laughs) someone in the ass with both thumbs by the way i just want to let you know don't do that (laughs) not the first time out no 
<laughs> you don't start with two. You work up to it. You start out with the Ralph Mouth. Then you do Potsy Weber. Then the full Cunningham. Then it's double thumb Fonz. A up the old. Uh, <laughs> and then then you bump it just to get it to turn on. I don't know what that means sexually, but... That's how babies get made. <laughs> These women are calling into this show, and one lady calls up and says she left her clothes at his house, and she's all pissed off, which I'm like, well, just go get your clothes. And Julie's just like, mm, Leon, he's just, he's so crazy. My first big laugh actually came in this scene when the, this lady calls up and she says, uh, ladies, man, I've recently been feeling confused. And he goes... <laughs> Yeah, that sounds good. This movie works when it just fully lets the Leon Phelps character embrace his unabashed, unique worldview in contrast to how normal, everyday people respond. That's when the movie is at its absolute best. That's what made the sketch work. I think Tim Meadows is brilliantly funny. And I've got probably at least, you know, three or four other instances in it where he says things when, you know, people come in and say, Oh my gosh, here's this thing. And he's like, Yeah, that sounds good. Tell me, like, no. This is awful. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah. like that's what's wrong. And that's what made me kind of go back and think this would have worked as a fish out of water story of putting him in a different time and a different place to where it's like, well, this is normal for me. You're the one that's confused. Or if you didn't have the Will Ferrell character oh. in this movie. I, I, it, <laughs> uh, I was watching an, uh, an interview. It was actually between Bill Hader and Jason Bateman interviewing each other. Jason Bateman talked about how he was attracted to parts where he played the straight man. And he was talking specifically about movies like Airplane and things like that, where if the comedy is happening all around you or there's one character that's a cartoon that all everything else around that character has to be the real world and the way he put it was otherwise if everyone is being wacky then it's all on mars and who could care because there's no reality to any of it i call bullshit because that sounds like a bunch of actor nonsense and i think that's coming from somebody saying like i'm attracted to the straight man roles yeah you know why because because you maybe you're not funny maybe you like you realize like i should be playing the straight man role i remember reading neil simon wrote uh, a biography in it he talked about writing the odd couple and he brought it to walter matthau and matthau read it and he was just like yeah he was like i'd love to do this play but uh i want to play the the felix unger part and neil simon was like god damn it no look it's you it's gonna be you and art carney and i need you to play the slovenly you know drunken idiot because he's like he was like yeah yeah but that's too easy for me as an actor i need to stretch he was like just just would you just fucking do this i'm quoting neil simon here now <laughs> sure if everybody's wacky you gotta have a straight man i agree yeah. with that but to say like i'm drawn to that maybe there's just you're just i don't know you're not funny right well i i think arrested development shows that intentionally or not jason bateman could be very funny but is leslie nielsen funny no Leslie Nielsen is funny because everything around him is funny. I think that Brock Sampson is the hands down funniest character on the Venture Brothers. And I don't think he's ever said or done a funny thing on that show. I might be arguing against myself right now. <laughs> I think maybe you are a little bit. All right. Shit. All right. So let's get. Let, <laughs> um, this is a, we got a real civil situation here now. <laughs> All right, so everybody's calling into the show, and they're all pissed off. Julie's holding up a clipboard, and she's like, "Like you're getting all these complaints, and everybody hates you. And it doesn't make sense. Like I was like, is his show popular? Is it not? 
I don't know. If people are so angry about his show, then why are they calling in? If his show is popular, why would the brass want to fire him? Although they do want to fire him. Right. You know what? It doesn't matter because the movie Screech takes a hard right turn. And who shows up but Billy D. Williams and his velvet voice Which, if I could have anybody read me a bedtime story at night, Billy D. Williams is number eight on that list. Oh, I thought you were going to... Maria Bamford is number one. (laughs) Bobcat Goldthwait's number three. (laughs) Circa 1987 Bobcat Goldthwait. Just clearing his throat, screeching and yelling. (laughs) Spittle flying everywhere. But yeah, so Billy D. Williams shows up as, you know, how the mighty have fallen. Why didn't this movie start and end with him? Why isn't he narrating the whole movie just the whole way through? In fact, you know what he reminded me of? He reminded me of like those Rankin and Bass Christmas specials, you know, with Burl Ives and he's like a snowman and Fred Astaire is a postman or whatever. And he's just sort of like, you know, well, hey there, you know, here's what's going on. Let me tell you the story about the ladies, man. Come on in here. I've got something I want you to find out. But they don't do that at all. In fact, you know what? I think I would like to see Billy D. Williams animated in this movie. Maybe he's a talking bottle of Covassier or like a talking dildo or something. Have a holly jolly fucking <laughs> and in case you didn't hear oh by golly have a holly jolly fucking in the rear. <laughs> that, that's nasty. You're right but also we have to have this running gag of Leon Phelps entering a scene as Billy D. Williams is narrating and, you know, breaking the fourth wall and saying, why are you narrating? Why do you keep doing that? But, all right, but let's get to the the origin story, the, you know, Uncle Ben gets killed of the ladies' man. Yeah, Billy D. tells this story of the ladies' man, and he was an orphan, and he's left on the stoop of a man who is clearly not Hugh Hefner. It's just a guy that looks like Benedict Cumberbatch doing his best Hugh Hefner impersonation, but it is not Benedict Cumberbatch, and it is definitely not a spot-on impression of someone that looks just like Hugh Hefner, but isn't Hugh Hefner, even though he's surrounded by four women of varying ethnicities, dressed in Playboy, excuse me, I mean Playdude Bunny, I mean Playdude Sexy Rabbit costumes. Why would Playboy turn this down? You know, I mean, they didn't even ask. You don't think they ran that up the the old flagpole, no pun intended, where they're like, hey, we've got this situation where we're gonna drop leon off at the playboy mansion with hev what do you guys think click (laughs) (laughs) but why this is you know circa 2000 right nah they were they were doing the girls next door hef was running around with those three chicks they weren't gonna deal with this bullshit you know like the ladies man i'm the ladies man you know (laughs) Much like Mowgli in The Jungle Book and Navin R. Johnson in The Jerk, Leon is taken in and raised by those who are not like him to learn the ways of the world. And so he's raised in not Hugh Hefner's house, and we see him grow into a teenager where he's surrounded by naked women and lots of other sexy stuff. And then, kind of just like the story of Adam and Eve, Leon tasted the forbidden fruit by fucking not Hugh Hefner's main squeeze, and then he's just thrown out of the grotto, which is, in this case, a Chicago townhouse. And that's our origin story of the ladies' man. Except the tail end of that is Billy D telling us, Leon landed on his feet because the ladies love him. Then we cut to the bar that Billy D Williams owns as, I almost said Navin Art Johnson, as Leon Phelps. <laughs> oh, what a better movie. That would have been a much be. better movie. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you kidding me? 
this means something. So in this bar, not only do we have Billy D. Williams and Leon Phelps and Julia's along for the ride, we also have speaking of boomerang, one of the best parts of that movie. Jonathan Witherspoon. Jo- Jonathan Witherspoon playing uh scrap iron is is his name in this film we also have candy who is a real rough book kind of prostitute yeah candy is played by jill talley who worked with tim meadows at second city we first saw her on mr show and for me having kids of a certain age and also just being a huge fan of spongebob she is forever and always karen the robot wife to Plankton on SpongeBob SquarePants. And she's married to Tom Kenny, who does the voice of SpongeBob. So it all kind of, you know, the dots connect one another. Oh, wow. Yeah, Jonathan Witherspoon as Scrap Iron. He's just a drunk. And he's just walking around the bar, finishing off what's left in other people's discarded drinks. He's an alcoholic. Is that the right word for it? Absolutely. He has not just hit upon hard times. He hit rock bottom and set up a tent. I don't think he works there. They're just like, hey, Scrap Iron, if you'll bust the tables, you can just drink whatever's left in the glasses. So he's just drinking for free. We're going to turn a blind eye. To your crippling alcoholism if you'll clean the shitter every now and again. This character named Cheryl comes walking in, but her name doesn't matter. She comes walking into this really sexy saxophone music, and Leon pulls this like real Tex Avery, you know, eyes bugging out, tongue on the floor, and he's going to go over and, and woo her. Look, if a woman that's this dolled up and attractive comes into this disgusting, vile bar by herself, I'm thinking one, she's either a prostitute or she's a transvestite or possibly both. Uh, you know, <laughs> fingers crossed. <laughs> well, I mean, there's no other logical explanation. And I'm not sure that any of these, uh, I don't know, options are necessarily deterrents for Leon Phelps, which got me thinking, do you think Leon ever had sex with a, like a transvestite? Probably. And, and was cool with it. You think he ever had sex with a man? No, not as such. Uh, how about a man and a woman at the same time? Sure. I, th- I don't think he is afraid of a, of another penis. But it's got to be in the trappings of, it's a lady, you know? Do you think that he would let, like, a dude watch him on closed circuit video while he and a lady did their thing? Like how Hulk Hogan did in that video that got leaked out? A hundred percent. I really like this game, by the way. (laughs) I can keep going. I've got, uh, I have 172 scenarios called, do you think Leon Phelps did it to a lady this way? (laughs) Uh huh. Yeah. No, I think. Yeah, I, I think he would absolutely allow himself to be closed circuit viewed cuckolding a man. I think he would let it happen in the same room while someone else jerked off watching. It. <laughs> that was my next one. Would he let a guy hide in the closet? Yes. Yes. He wouldn't even have to hide in the closet if he was like, hey, I want to I want to sit here in this chair and stroke myself while you fuck my wife. He would probably be like, yeah, that's weird, but. I like your wife. And then he would absolutely be down for it. (laughs) I'm going to stop because I've read ahead on my list of questions. And I think it's starting to say more about me than it is about Leon Phelps. So let's get get back to our our walkthrough. So Julie, his uh, producer partner, she gets up to leave because she knows that Leon's going to go have sex with this woman. And she's not surprised. She's just kind of that Leon. And she's not jealous. um, And she's totally cool. 
And again, this is only important because the farther we get along in this movie as kind of her character develops, um, maybe that's, you know, I don't know, too strong of a word. But as she sort of progresses, you need to understand that early on, she's not, she's not jealous or upset that he's going over to, to hit on this other woman. Right. It's who he is. His core nature, as Billy D has told us, is that he is a ladies' man, that the ladies love him. He loves the ladies. That's just his dynamic. And speaking of Billy D. Williams, he then interrupts the linear narrative of our film to answer the question that nobody was asking, how did a nice girl like Julie end up in a shithole bar like this? And on a scale of one to not at all, how surprised would you have been if Homer Simpson had just walked into this bar? <laughs> um, I mean, that's a big scale. I would probably say uh, one, um, only because he is animated. What if it was the sexy cake 3D animated Homer from like 1990. <laughs> no, uh, not at all at that point. If, if Homer Simpson showed up and was somehow like this turned into a buddy movie with a CG Homer and the ladies man trying to find a, a, a hidden treasure before some bounty hunters or something, this would be one of the best movies I'd ever seen. <laughs> So, so Billy D tells us because no one cares. Billy D says, uh, two years ago, Julie, this is my Billy D Williams impersonation. Two years ago, Julie came into the bar for the first time. And then we, we theatrically pan over to the door and, uh, the light changes, you know, in this kind of from the ambient light to, to more like blue light to make it look like we're in the past. Anyway, so Julie comes walking in and she's wearing a wedding dress. And, you know, in the bar is the same group of derelicts that are hanging out. There's Leon and Candy and Scrap Iron and all the other random, you know, who cares? And she sits down and then Billy D starts to pour her a drink even before she orders. She's drinking something called Golden Amber. I think it's whiskey. And then she just immediately takes the bottle from him and she finishes the pour. And I just wanted to, ask if if we could keep a running tally of julie's behavior because at the end of this movie we will have a character profile of a truly disturbed crazy woman because to start off here she's a runaway bride that's ducked into some corner bar that belongs i don't know adjacent to maybe like a pill mill doctor's office right there's a pawn shop two doors down there's a gun shop across the street a check cashing place is right next to that a methadone clinic inside the bar for some reason <laughs> Julie's wearing her wedding dress and she inaudibly pulls the old, you know, just leave the bottle, you know, when she takes it, which I bartended for a lot of years. Nobody ever did that. Again, keep in mind, this is a flashback. So then Leon, sensing that he might be able to get some, he comes over and asks her if her father was a meat burglar because it looks like somebody stuffed two hams down the back of her dress. And this pickup line amuses Julie to no end. And she starts laughing and laughing. And then Billy D as the narrator quotes her gleeful laughter and he says, she kept on laughing. I thought she was crazy. I think this was meant to be a declarative statement and not more of a, like a statement of self doubt. Like, I think he was like, this woman is insane. <laughs> right. She came in exhibiting really disturbing behavior. And then when someone hit on her in the, the most, no pun intended, ham-fisted possible way. <laughs> right. That's, that's what listeners come for, Chad. That kind of quality pun. She is not immediately repulsed. In theory, she has left a man because she has been, she has discovered somehow that he either cheated on her or uh, she got cold feet or something. 
But the last thing I would imagine that she would want to do is meet some guy that clearly just wants to fuck her. And and I guess what you can say for the character of Leon Phelps here is that when she kind of shoots him down, he still talks and laughs with her. And this is why I say there is uh, there's an actual through line to this film. It's not a great one. But it really is, how do these crazy kids get together? And so we see the first meeting here. We understand what their relationship is now, which is, you know, purely professional, even though it may be head-scratching why Julie is hanging on to Leon Phelps. But given our supposition that she's a crazy person, uh, a.k.a. as medical science deems them cuckoos, that she is maybe codependent where she needs a man like Leon Phelps in her life, someone who is substantially broken so she can feel better about herself. Kind of like Harley Quinn and the Joker. Very similar. I will say, though, in this scene, we get another gag about Leon telling Billy D. Williams to stop narrating. Then Leon Phelps describing how the situation is going to go when he approaches this woman. Then he does. He tries to execute on his little fantasy. The thing that makes me laugh in this scene is before Leon can really get his shitty come on out of the way she heads him off at the pass and says would you like to come back to my place and his response is yeah uh we'll have to take your car because my car doesn't exist that was a funny joke let me ask you a question one of the things two topics so First off, let's talk about what Leon says and how he says it. Because Leon talks about sex the way a 12-year-old boy would write adult erotic fiction. Do you know what I mean? Like he's he, like he, the way he talks about sex is he says things like then he put his dingling into her you know hole to make, you know, sexy stuff and then he touched her on her nanners. And it was electric and he became a missile man as she put her tongue around his neck. And it's like, do you understand how basic human biology works? Because it doesn't make any sense. And then as I watched this movie the second time, I had an epiphany that I thought Tim Meadows' voice for Leon Phelps sounded as if Eddie Murphy's buckwheat received elocution lessons from Professor Henry Higgins. You know what I mean? Like, like starting off... And it, it's almost like, like that, you know, like Dwayne in pain, Paul's many on the Dane. Like again, Mr. Wheat, Dwayne right. in pain, fall many on the pain, Mr. Wheat again, you know, and then you finally arrive at, you know, Dwayne in Spain falls mainly on the pain, Covatier. By Buck, he's got it. He has, he has become yeah. a distinguished <laughs> gentleman. You know, the sad part of that analogy is that I had to stop and think about who Henry Higgins was. Uh, <laughs> but I knew immediately Eddie Murphy's buckwheat. <laughs> and we'll get to it later, but that comes from my hatred of musicals. I just also want to note that it, kind of with, with the voice thing, I think that Rollo from the Cleveland show has uh, more than a little bit of the ladies man in his delivery. Yeah. Let's get to the throbbing meat of the story, oh, which kind of yes. kicks off here. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Th this episode ought to come with uh, a, a warning about how sexy it is. 
So, <laughs> so we see the dude from There's Something About Mary that you mentioned in the intro coming into his apartment. Or he's trying to get in and his wife's like, hang on for a second. And what we quickly realize is that Leon is uh, making sweet, sweet love to his wife. And the husband finally busts through the door and Leon says, gotta go. And <laughs> runs out the door just buck naked do you say buck naked or butt naked like buck like a deer or butt like your ass i buck like a deer is 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 that not correct i don't know i don't say it that often it doesn't come up i say butt naked because you're naked and you can see your butt Uh, according to uh, a quick internet research here buck naked is technically correct although butt naked has been so often used that both are acceptable good <laughs> so you know we're both it, it, everybody wins is the moral of that story he after he's buck or butt naked um leon uh escapes out a window and he goes down this it looks like a like a, a laundry wire or whatever and he slides down and he lands into a children's inflatable pool with water in it so that pool is full of i don't know like semen and natural body lubrication and other sex residue so parents a little splash of bleach, change out the water regularly. You never know what your kids are playing in. Yeah, you don't know what's going on at night when you're fast asleep and naked men are using it as a landing pad. Their own personal ball wash. And then um, this guy, Barney the husband, he sees Leon's ass from like 200 feet away, which no, he didn't. And he makes out uh, this like what looks like a jailhouse tattoo of a smiley face sticking out its tongue. And then above it, it, says, it there's the words, have a nice day with a question mark. So it's like, have a nice day. Is that a joke? Yeah, I, it feels like that's something that got cut out of this movie, much like Leon Phelps' foreskin, because we do get a glimpse of Wayne. You do see his dick when he's sliding down that that pole. You're like, whoa, look at that. You can see his great big dick. Yeah, again, good for Tim Meadows, man. Or the stunt man, or what? I don't know. I don't think Tim Meadows will slide down that pole, maybe. You don't think so? We cut to Leon, and he's back on the air, and it's now 2.15 a.m., which is, I just want to say, for those who've been following, this is the same time slot that Stuart Smalley was bitching about being on the air. But that is when you get the really good calls. Because here's the thing. Quick side story. I used to listen to Coast to Coast with Art Bell back when I worked in the restaurant business. And I would drive Mm -hmm. home late at night. And one night, the devil himself called in and talked about how his whole goal was to create distractions for humanity through television and the internet to keep people from focusing on relationships with one another and ignoring the things that really mattered, like the environment. And the the devil was trying to create like these divisions in culture and politics to prevent us from evolving to like a higher state of being. And to this day, that call haunts me. Do do you think it was actually the devil who called? No, I don't. I don't think that the actual devil called Art Bell on Coast to Coast. But it might have been. Who knows, man? I'm in the same boat. I think uh, I have spent more time than I should have tracking down old Coast to Coast episodes (laughs) to listen to at night when I go to bed. Just to recapture that, that, you know... The sweet bird of youth, Chad. When when uh, the halcyon days of lying in bed late at night and listening to people talk about the portals to hell that they found in Utah. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Oh, I fucking love that show. 
If you don't know what we're talking about right now, you are missing out. Go on the internet and track this shit down because Art Bell, and it's got to be Art Bell. You know, like you can't get any of the later guys. Art yeah, Bell. George Norrie is a poor substitute. <laughs> no, it's kind of like everybody's got their favorite James Bond. Everybody's got their favorite host of Mystery Science Theater. When it comes to Coast to Coast, there is really only one host. And that was Art Bell. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. <laughs> anytime you can get one, one other Art Bell aside, anytime you can get your, your grubby little pause on an episode where someone is calling from a quote, secret government facility. <laughs> That's like one in three. It's, right. It doesn't matter because it's all fucking gold. And having someone panicked explaining to Art Bell what the <laughs> aliens are really here for. They were so great. Oh man. All right. Look. <laughs> <laughs> so Leon's back on the air and who should call in but Barney, the husband from the night before. And keep in mind, he doesn't know that Leon was the one fucking his wife. He's just calling in for advice, I guess. Anyway, so I just want to describe what's going on in Barney's house. So again, within a 24 hour period, he has since ripped all of the wallpaper off of every wall in this home. Furniture is broken. Doors have been ripped off the hinges. It's a disaster. Barney tells Leon that he came home last night to find his wife in bed with another man. And Leon says, yeah that sounds good again this is the part of this movie i love when he's just totally unaware that his worldview is misaligned with everybody else around him and barney's like no no it's not good she was in bed with some other guy and he says i saw this tattoo on his ass of a smiling face and then leon immediately hangs up with barney and goes on to the next call but then the scene continues with barney in this moment that was clearly written by an uncredited rube goldberg Barney is standing on this chair, preparing to put a hanging noose around his neck to kill himself. But then Barney slips and his foot goes through the seat of the chair. He falls down and then the chair back hits his dick. And then the noose pulls down the ceiling fan, which causes the chair to topple over, sending Barney's head to the floor, which hits a remote, which turns on the TV, which is on a channel showing porno. And then Barney stands up, pulls down his pants to inspect his crushed genitals. Then his wife walks in and sees Barney standing there rubbing his dick moaning in pain there are women on TV in the background making out and then his wife yells out mousetrap I made that last part up now she then she yells out and she's like you know what are you doing and then he gives it the old it's not what you think what I wanted to post to you Bo is this what does she think is going on in this scene she's walked in and she's caught her husband jerking off to porn and he may be dabbling in some autoerotic asphyxiation after destroying their home right aka a carotene yes that's what she thinks is going on where but his response is it's not what you think but the reality of the situation is that he was attempting suicide and failed thus proving, I don't know what, further incompetence as a human being of getting anything done that he sets out to do. And then adding insult to injury, he crushed his balls with a chair. Is that better? No. Like, if everything goes wrong, it's like the old Dennis Miller gag about the easiest job in the world being a coroner. Uh, because if everything goes wrong, you get a pulse. <laughs> and it's a good gag. But in this scenario, it's like his his wife has already cheated on him. If she sees him jerking off with a noose around his neck and porn on TV and she reacts with horror, who gives a shit? That relationship was over anyway. Right. On the other hand, if she's like, oh, damn, honey, I didn't know you were into this. This opens a whole new door in our relationship. <laughs> now I don't have to look outside our marriage anymore. He played this all wrong. Well, look, he's young we have the benefit of years 
we know now that if someone walks in and you're doing something like if you accidentally <laughs> sat on one of those children's ring toys that went up your ass you bang your head fall forward onto your bed with this thing sticking out of your ass like a flagpole announcing your rectal invasion and your wife enters and says what is going on here your response shouldn't be it's not what it looks like it ought to be like yeah i got this thing in my ass you want to join in right what do you what do you think about that Mm, i think i want to play ring toss right we cut back to the radio station, and as you mentioned, uh, SCTV's uh, own Eugene Levy comes in, and he's the evil radio station boss. He's there at 2.15 a.m. What a sad life he must lead. You know, do- he struck me as one of those guys who bitches about how he's always working like a 60-hour work week, but he really just doesn't have anywhere else to fucking go at the end of the day. <laughs> he's, he's gear from an officer and a gentleman. So uh, he says that he's got a bunch of FCC complaints and that he would have fired Leon if he wasn't such a favorite of the owner of the station and that he doesn't know what she sees in him. I immediately expected this to go somewhere in the movie. Yes. I was thinking, is Julie, his producer, the owner of the station? Is it going to be her mother? Is there, you know, there's some sort of, you know, guardian angel that's keeping him on the air because she loves him. It goes nowhere. You're right about all of that. But a couple of things I will point out in this scene that I think are are in the pro column for the ladies. One is Julie asks him in the upfront of this scene uh, why Leon has to sleep with all these women. And his response is, yeah, have you ever had sex? And I think that's a funny gag. Also, the fact that we establish at this point, if Leon gets one more fine for this station, then Eugene Levy gets to fire. So we have legitimate stakes set up. I mean, this pays off really quickly, but... It pays off in 15 seconds. Right, but uh, in, in to your point about, like, does this have a distinct Act 1, Act 2, Act 3... I would say the end of Act 1 is where he gets booted out of the station. I'm not going to argue that, but I don't even I don't know where Act 2 and yeah, Act 3 is when the credits roll. I know when that is. <laughs> right. So. Yeah, immediately after Eugene Levy is like, I get to fire him. That's my Eugene Levy. It's pretty good. It was a really good Eugene Levy. (laughs) And um, Leon is reading this poem uh, to close his show. And it's this kind of tender poem about like, you know, what if love but the stars come to earth? You know, it's stuff like that. And (laughs) it ends with him saying, do it in the butt. And then Leon is immediately thrown out onto the street. Right. Uh, yeah, and that's end of Act One, according to Bo. Right, because and then and then from there, so they've they've lost their jobs, and then Julie escorts Leon back to his home, which is a houseboat. Houseboats, in my opinion, are just like trailers of the sea. They're just trash that floats that you can live in. He he lives in a houseboat in Chicago. That is insane. You can live in a houseboat in Florida or along you know the the coast or maybe California. You do not live in a houseboat in Chicago. Have you ever seen the winters in Chicago and just the, the crashing waves there? He would be dead. Clearly, he is behind on payment for this particular houseboat. I don't think he has a lot of options. Like, I think he is, you know, financially trapped in Chicago. The movie would probably be better if it spent any time talking about why it is he doesn't just leave. Like, why doesn't he get in his houseboat and sail to Florida or something? And, and like, well, you know, I've burned all my bridges here. 
It's time to go to Florida. Julia escorts Leon into uh, into his, uh, I guess, his one-room house. And in there, there's this circle-shaped waterbed, which, no, there isn't. That's not a thing. And th- this whole his whole houseboat looks like every head shop I've ever been to. There's beads and incense, <laughs> and there's like a, you know, velvet on the walls, and there's sculptures of people having sex and disco lighting. And then Leon tells her that he calls this his skanctuary, which, isn't that what other people should call this place? Not what Leon? should call it yes but he also uses the word skank pretty liberally and i don't think it's an insult when it <laughs> i think what it, what it's implying <laughs> as far as leon is concerned a skank is someone who is readily willing to l- to let him put his dick in them yes <laughs> that it is not necessarily a connotation about cleanliness or moral character or anything like that other than they're willing to have sex with it so julie helps drunk leon get into bed and then he offers for them to have sex she says no she immediately picks up a universal remote that is of a woman's torso that you have to push up the bikini top to reveal her naked breasts where the nipples are the channel up and channel down controls so all right let's talk about this fucking remote control for two seconds (laughs) we could spend a half hour talking about it if you want (laughs) look you know no spencer's gifts no hustler (laughs) store is gonna have this remote control this is why leon phelps can't pay his goddamn bills it's because he's spending all of his money on shit like this like he had to (laughs) much like the film silver bullet uh he had to find an old world craftsman who just made booby remotes <laughs> so you're saying that leon phelps has um someone that he reaches out to that does um custom prototypes of sexy electronics yes hmm. because he's got the you know so, uh, speaking of the booby remote when you hit the button on that thing, it has like a, a, you know, this elevated shelf that comes out of nowhere with various lotions and oils and salves and balms. Yeah, one of them is pina colada butt lotion. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny. You could maybe argue that that's, I don't know, like something you would, you know, rub on your ass. But when you look at the bottle, it's pretty clear that this was meant for, I don't know, like intimate moments and not dermatologist approved ointments or something like that. Is this the point where Julie asks him, where did you get all this stuff? She asks him that and he says, um, he got it. Um, I got it at Kmart or, or at Walmart. Finally, you know, Sam Walton's dream of being the number one supplier of ass lubricant in these United States is coming true. Good for you, Sam Walton. You know, it is real damn hard to to find lubrication at a Target or a Walmart. Pat found it at her local Five and Dime. His local Five and Dime. I'm not talking the the apocalypse world of its Pat, Chad. I'm talking about the real world in which you and I live. They hide that shit. I don't know what it is. Like, just good old-fashioned KY Jelly. And I'm not saying I'm purchasing a ton of it, but the handful of times it's felt like something that might be necessary. It's like the goddamn Ark of the Covenant. You get, it's not just, hey, it's on the bottom shelf. Take it to the counter. You have to find the, the next two items, meaning that you're like, okay, I'm looking for KY lubrication. Where are the rubbers? And then you're like, okay, where are the rubbers? <laughs> right. Then you're just like, okay, where are, say, like tampons? And then you, you sort of work your way backwards. <laughs> so you basically, have to say where are all the things that i can find between navel and knees to support right but you don't go past the taint keep it up front 
You go but in the back, you're going to be in the wrong section of the store. Right. You're not going to find KY right beside Preparation H, even though that's kind of where it ought to be. You, you, let me tell you how you're going to know you're in the wrong section of the store. You're going to find pina colada butt lotion. <laughs> then I'm home. <laughs> so Julie leaves and says, hey, we got to start our job hunt tomorrow, which, again, I don't know why she's taking care of him. I kept expecting there to be a flashback of maybe Leon helping her out as a kid or she has this other secret or something. It kind of it made me think about the the boy in Superstar you know, that there was going to be something. And she she gives him these knowing glances of like, I'm taking care of you for reasons that you may not be wholly aware of. But none of that's true. I was just expecting there to be better and there wasn't. All of this should be better in, in terms of, there as he's coming on to her and like, hey, are we going to have thick now? Uh, she should, in that moment, instead of just laughing and saying no, she should have that moment where she's like, you know, what am I doing with this guy? Maybe there is something here between us why do i feel this connection and it, it just none of that matters at least not until back to at one point i thought she might be his sister because he was adopted and that she knows that and he doesn't or something but then later later on when they're you know they they kind of hook up i was like oh i hope that's not what's gonna happen because that's really gonna get weird getting a real luke and leia vibe off this thing so now we cut to barry the husband and he's smoking what i thought was a joint he's trolling around some 1990s internet site and he goes to this portal which leads him to this page for Victims of the Smiling Ass, or the VSA, and it's this group of men that are seeking revenge on the man who had sex with their wives or girlfriends or moms or whatever. On their website in the navigation, there's like a banner for rice aroni, and there's also a link to the father and son picnic. The internet was weird back then. I'm glad I'm glad we got past that. It's a real GeoCities looking site to begin with. You know, it took me back. <laughs> it's, it's shitty. Our, our, our next scene, we see Julie and Leon, and... They go from radio station to radio station trying to get a job, and then uh, they are repeatedly not given a job because the demo tape that they play always um, has Leon talking about people having sex doggy style. I'm not going to go into too much detail about this montage. It's not that great. And then finally they land a job on this religious station because the daytime DJ has just quit and Mark McKinney um, is the manager at the station. And Mark, again, as noted in uh, our Superstar episode, he makes everything funny, even when he's not doing anything funny. So Leon gets this job and his first guest is a nun. And then everything the nun says has this double meaning with sexual innuendo. She's going to Bangkok and will be in a missionary position for a long time. And she plans to hold it, you know, for, for many months. And this yeah. whole scene, Leon's like starting to sweat and he's about to pop. And it, it feels like a scene that's better suited for a Beavis and Butthead short or maybe in Wayne's world, you know, where Garth is like trying not to laugh. But it does not work in this movie all that well. No, it doesn't. But I, I do think that it highlights the the cartoonish nature of this film that it comes close to, especially when you get into some of the Will Ferrell stuff. And it's one of the, the bigger problems with this movie is that it can't decide if it wants to be sort of this love story, which it kind of is, or if it wants to be this cartoonish look at this ridiculous character which it kind of is and it just never manages to marry those two things together very well yeah in this scene leon finally can't help himself and he erupts by telling the nun this story about him having sex with twin sisters and then their mom walked in with a video camera which look Take that at face value. This story is dealing with a lot of deviant sexual dysfunction in a family that really needs help. <laughs> Leanne gets fired 
And then Julie's outside with Leon and she's like, you know, bitching and complaining. You keep getting fired from every job we get. And so Leon tells Julie not to worry. And he says he is a man of action, that he is going to go have sex and then wait for something random to happen, um, which he does. And this is kind of a funny moment of just sort of showing how he just sort of rides along on the, you know, the, the, the waves of life just to see what happens next. So I thought that was kind of a funny moment. Yeah. He has sex with a woman and then the mailman shows up at the house and the mailman is played by kids in the hall mainstay kevin mcdonald who is always brilliantly funny the kid in the hall we don't like yes <laughs> he, why is he in this is he just getting a paycheck probably he was probably visiting mark mckinney on set and they were like hey do you want to be in this movie and he's like well what do you want me to do how about you be the worst mailman ever all right worse than it's pat yeah well he's not as disgusting he's just <laughs> he's overtly cruel like the because the whole gag is that as he's giving the mail to leon he just intentionally drops it just out of arm's reach of leon and it's like oh i'm sorry i think leon even says like you are the worst mailman ever he also tells him that jimmy walker uh like has a telegram or a a, a message for him (laughs) that's right you know that the 70s are over and again for anyone just for for people who who don't who don't give a shit you know jimmy walker was on the show called good times and it was popular in the 70s which is why he references it here and it also introduced the phrase, damn, 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 to my own personal like lexicon whenever somebody drops a dish. And if it's a glass bowl, oh my God, that's one of the greatest days ever. And I will tell you, I was in a home goods store once and a woman dropped a glass bowl and I loudly said, damn, 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 just in hopes that somebody around would catch the reference but i don't think that they yeah for for our listeners at home watch the death of james evans episode of good times or don't i don't give a shit what you do yeah you kind of (laughs) should so leon takes his mail and then he just he just kind of like verbally discards the bills in the same fashion that Fred Sanford used to toss them away. Again, Fred Sanford was a character played by Red Fox on this iconic sitcom called Sanford and Son. So let's just flesh all that out. <laughs> Red Fox was a comedian. <laughs> Just go talk to your grandparents and all this will make sense or not. I don't care what you do. Yeah, just go up to some old man and say, Red Fox? Oh, we used to have listening parties. He he used to have these things that were called party albums. You put them on at night and you could play. <laughs> he said the craziest, nastiest stuff. Oh, Red Fox, Joan Rivers. <laughs> now, Mom's yeah. Mabley, let me tell you about Mom. <laughs> Let's get back to this century, and uh, well, not really, because we're talking about a movie from the uh, from the 1900s. Uh, Leon gets a letter from a lady um, saying that she wants to get back together with him, and she has plenty of money to take care of him for the rest of his life. So Leon takes the letter to Julie and shares it with her. She reads it out loud, and I like it in movies when people read letters out loud, and I like it even more when we like hear them thinking the words as they read it. And then I like it even more when people write a letter and they say the words out loud when they're writing the letter down. Those are three things I like in movies. Yeah. It's the only way I, I really know how to read or write. It's a lot of lip movement when I do those things. By the time you read this, I will be dead. It's it's like the old uh, uh, old time radio shows where somebody would be writing, like it would all be the epistolary sort of storytelling of like i write in this journal as i come to hargrave manor and it always ends with like what someone is at the door ah they're coming in right now ah and it's like well i don't know that 
Clip, 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 <laughs> I don't know that you take the time to write out ah, ellipses. I, he fell off a cliff in that one. <laughs> so the letter is signed uh, Sweet Thing, uh, which is the name that Leon calls everyone. So they don't know who this mystery person is. Up until this point in the movie, I didn't know what it was about at all. Like you said, it was like, well, does he need a job? Kind of, not really. But now the movie is about finding Sweet Thing because I don't know. That's what it's about now. Julie tells Leon that she has one other radio station where she can call in a favor to maybe get them a job, but it's being run by Cyrus, her ex-fiance. And it should be noted here that Cyrus dumped Julie, presumably at the altar, because as we mentioned earlier, we saw Julie run into the bar in her wedding dress. Or, to be honest here... I think that maybe Julie just puts on her wedding dress and just runs about town from one shitty drinking hole to another in search of attention and maybe free booze. Oh, God, if I were a woman, I would do that in a heartbeat. Just go buy a we- buy a used wedding dress uh-huh. and then just go from bar to bar telling your sad story getting drunk for free. Oh, it pays for itself in the first month. I wonder if you could pull that off now. If I wore a wedding dress and tried it. I don't think that's going to fly. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you in a wedding dress going into a Ruby Tuesdays, sitting at the bar and seeing if you can get drunk for free. Chad, I told you I will only wear a wedding dress once and that is it. (laughs) And was it to get drunk at an Applebee's? No, it was going to be a Chili's (laughs) because I like their Southwest egg rolls. (laughs) and their cadillac margaritas there's a reason they're (laughs) called cadillacs sir right that that is a full (laughs) lime wheel on on the edge of that glass not a lime wedge it's a lime wheel so leon points out that not only does julie's plan involve reaching out to her her ex-fiance for help but she he also notes here that cyrus has a three-inch penis and then leon objects to this plan and wants to stick with the sweet thing plan of bilking this mystery woman out of her money and that's what he wants to do so then our next scene is where we go and we're at the the meeting of the victims of smiling ass or the vsa and barney the cuckolded husband shows up and the head of the organization is lance played by snl uh, superstar will ferrell who gladly welcomes barney into this meeting and he goes around the room it's sort of like the dirty dozen kids ask your parents about that one too um where will ferrell is introducing everyone in the group this is terry uh you know the the happy face uh molester or whatever they're calling him uh slept with his wife and they get to this kind of schlubby guy named hal and the gag is that it happened multiple times with hal the only reason i point this out is because hal later in this scene has one of my favorite lines of the movie then will ferrell tells his own story and again we kind of break the fourth wall a little bit in terms of the lights around him dimming we shine a spotlight on him it's this kind of directorial gag where uh the movie becomes suddenly about will ferrell and his passion for wrestling and his buddy Brian that he likes to go wrestle with and it becomes immediately clear that the joke is that Will Ferrell is gay and is not wrestling with Brian well he kind of is but it's Greco-Roman wrestling in the the sort of Greco-Roman wrestling that needs the lubrication we were talking about earlier and after they they go through all of the different players they say that they're going to track down Leon 
and cut his dick off with bolt cutters. And th- this is the line that I like from Hal, like like after Will Ferrell gets crazy violent about it. In the background, you hear how when when they're like, "Hey, man, calm down." And he's like, "You're right. You're right. I went a little too far that time." And the Hal character in the background says. It's yucky. <laughs> I noted that Will Ferrell's appearance as Lance in this film, he's got this uh, high and tight haircut that is dyed bright yellow. And he kind of looks like he's a set of overalls and one red t-shirt away from a passable Simon Phoenix Halloween costume from uh, Demolition Man. He's just like, it's this weird curvy flat top or like whenever you see, you know, I don't know like if Bart Simpson was a real person. This is his hair. See, now I just want to watch demolition man (laughs) it's a fine film is that where they eat all the taco bell Uh uh-huh but it was pizza hut in some places it depended on uh on on which cut of the movie um simon says die anyway so barney the husband um says he has a pair of pants that belong to the mystery man and apparently they have a bunch of pants that all of them have brought in because he always runs off naked but in his pair of pants a zippo lighter falls out that is inscribed with the words the ladies man which is the only clue that they need to go find leon phelps and i was like why didn't wouldn't barney have already gone through these pants looking for a wallet or any kind of identification just something one would assume but so we we cut back uh to leon and all of his uh drunken bar dwelling low life friends and they're planning out a, a search plan to go find sweet thing uh billy d the voice of reason as always shows that the uh, zip code on the envelope originated from chicago so they can narrow their search area from the entire planet to the city in which they live so that was help leon has a book that he's written down all of the names of the women that i presume were just going to be anonymous sex partners and then it begins with this montage of him going door to door i'm just going to kind of gloss over this because it's really not that uh, noteworthy until a little bit later so then we cut back to the bar and julie has shown up at this point with her ex-fiance cyrus the one with the three inch penis and within 15 seconds cyrus is immediately dismissing leon and he's just bad mouthing julie in the bar i mean it happens almost instantaneously i kind of want to know why they broke up you know you mentioned this a little bit earlier you know part of it may be her her drinking and other abusive tendencies that we're going to see a little later on but like what drove them apart at the altar it may be that cyrus just gave her a good one up and down where he was like oh my god this is the woman who is constantly drunk is underfoot all the time because she can't seem to exist without some man that she can obsess over and i just can't live like that i got my career I got I got things. She's been wearing that wedding dress for the last three months straight. I met her in it. <laughs> she literally has not taken it. I've not seen her in a public place without this dress on. At first, I thought it was kind of charming and amusing. <laughs> and now just it's sad. just dis- it, right. It's just disturbing. So in this scene, Leon stands up to Cyrus and tells him that he, he can't talk to Julie like that. And then Cyrus tells Leon to back off because he's from the streets. And then they, they kind of are, are getting ready to start a fight. But again, Billy D comes in, cooler heads prevail. Then Leon, for some weird reason, offers Cyrus a pickled pig's foot as a peace offering. Uh-huh. And Cyrus initially refuses because let's be honest, pickles, pig feet are gross. Look, I know this place is only open because it's not sanctioned to sell food and therefore it doesn't adhere to kind of like the normal standards of other restaurants. Or maybe, you know, Billy D. Williams is just sort of, you know, has some sort of 
godlike powers to make the door only appear when people who aren't health inspectors come around or something like that. Maybe it's like <laughs> like that Harry Potter nine and three quarters platform. You know, like you really have to believe in the existence of this roach and rodent infested swill mill to get inside. If you really believe in Lester's with all <laughs> your heart, a door will appear and you can get drunk on well vodka. <laughs> so Cyrus, um, he doesn't want to eat the pig's foot because... You know, obviously. Um, but then Scrap Iron calls Cyrus out by saying, come on, Johnny Mathis, I thought you were from the streets. And look, Johnny Mathis was a black performer who much later in his life came out as a homosexual. So we get a little, I don't know, unexpected insight into where Scrap Iron falls regarding LGBT issues. And I kind of thought, with Scrap Iron's passion of excessive drinking of partially finished cocktails and a clear disdain for homosexuals, do you think Scrap Iron would be friends with Stuart Smalley's dad? Either that or he would eventually date Stuart Smalley. <laughs> that he's just repressed, you know? Scrap Iron? Yeah. When he goes home at night is drinking like whatever three quarters of an inch of Pabst Blue Ribbon he found in a can on his way home is rubbing himself to chances are. Do you think it's kind of like that, uh, that, unex- that unexpected kiss at the end of American Beauty? You know, where, where Chris Cooper just lays one out on uh, Kevin Spacey, a.k.a. the gross one in that film, as it turns out. I haven't rewatched that since uh, all of the uh, unsettling details have come to light. But I got to tell you, it's <laughs> definitely on my bucket list for the end of this year. I can't wait to go back and rewatch that and just be like, ooh, ooh. <laughs> there and i watched seven again not too long ago and it just turns out that every performance that he ever turned in is about 70 percent creepier knowing <laughs> what you know about him even in a movie where he forced a guy to fuck someone to death with a solid steel dildo <laughs> that turns out to not be the most disturbing thing in that movie anymore. <laughs> Scrap Iron makes this dig at Cyrus. And then Candy, the former slash current prostitute slash stripper slash donor of plasma, announces that Julie once told Candy that when Julie and Cyrus were dating, there were a lot of things that Cyrus wouldn't eat, which I'm assuming is a thinly veiled comment around Cyrus not performing oral sex on Julie. That's a goddamn shame, really. You know, Michael Douglas blamed his his throat cancer on oral sex. Well, and now he's the original Ant-Man. Yeah, he sounds like the original Won't-Man. Can you imagine, like, if you're Catherine Zeta-Jones, <laughs> one of the most gloriously beautiful women to ever grace the screen, and he was like, yeah, I think I got a little of that cancer from your vag, hun. You'd be like, you can go straight to hell. Do you know the line around the block? If I said, you don't get to lick the whole thing, you just get to pucker up and kiss the lips, how many people would line up, male, female, and whatever, to get one sniff of this quim? <laughs> I'm going the other way. I think after this story breaks, every time she walks out of the bathroom at a restaurant, even the lowliest of busboy looks at her and goes, do you wash your hands? <laughs> There's a like a hazmat team that scrambles in. Somebody's rappelling through a, 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 a <laughs> you know sunlight uh, in, in the roof. We got a code four. Catherine Zeta-Jones' vag was in here. That thing spreads cancer like Ebola. So Cyrus, you know, 
<laughs> Cyrus can't take the, this public shaming, you know, from all of these degenerate alcoholics. And he sits down and he eats this pickled pig's foot. Scrap Iron comes up and uh, he ups the ante with some, some pickled eggs from this jar that's on the bar. And so Cyrus then eats a pickled egg, as does Leon. And then this is sort of turned into this contest to see who's man enough to eat this cornucopia of vile pickled bar food is it going to be cyrus who we've known for about 60 seconds or leon who we've seen in this movie for you know almost an hour and then billy d then uh, ups the ante with some prairie oysters which look like chitlins or intestines which i guess are the same thing i think it's balls right prairie it's sort of the funny farm thing no no because candy pulls out a jar and she calls them just straight up spicy hog balls which (laughs) like there's no there's no dancing around that and then leon eats one and cyrus follows suit and all the onlookers wince and again we've sort of seen this before people eating you know questionably disgusting food finally the piece de resistance scrap iron offers up some back bottom gristle lumps i just want to ask you what did you think this was going to be once the payoff happened i thought it was going to be just a straight up pig dick or something (laughs) show me hog penises Ding! Right. Well, because we'd already done balls. We'd done feet. And it was just like, well, where else can we go on the anatomy that would be less pleasant than, say, delicious pork shoulder? And, and it was the penis. And again, Cyrus isn't the bad guy in the movie. He's just a character that's wandered into this shithole bar. I mean, he hasn't really done anything that bad. Cyrus takes one of the the back bottom gristle lumps and uh, from this jar and he eats it. And he's really proud of himself until Scrap Iron informs him that, quote, you just ate some shit. And to be more specific, he just ate human shit. Pickled human shit. Yes. Yes. Cyrus then runs out of the bar, I'm assuming, to go get his stomach pumped. And everyone in this oversized toilet of an establishment just has a good laugh. And Julie and Leon share a moment and look each other in the eyes. I went to Urban Dictionary to see if back bottom gristle lumps was a real thing or if that was just something from the movie or did worlds collide here. And it's uh, the definition is a turd that is produced after eating steak that is of very low quality. Lots of gristle, fat and nerves. (laughs) That's awesome. This turd is often very hard and painful to pass and may tear your asshole. I think they call that a rectal <laughs> fissure. That's that's great. That, again, listeners, isn't it incredible that you're not paying a thin dime for this show? You were learning shit left and right. Who's whose shits were these? And then and when did they start saving them? And why? It was it was scrap irons to begin with. Let's get that out of the way. The solution that they're in, was it just, it can't just be piss, right? It had to be some sort of pickling liquid. Yeah, I, I think that there was a pickled egg jar laying around. Scrap iron had the equivalent of a backdoor kidney stone passing and was like, I can't just flush this. This was too, <laughs> I'll never forget this shit. I might as well keep some evidence. Can you imagine the smell when opening that jar? And what does that say about just the general aroma of this establishment? That opening up a jar of fermented turds does not alter the immediate environment enough for one to give pause as to whether or not you should eat this mystery object yeah safety tips for the listeners play it smart don't eat shit i i I think that's a good rule of thumb but 
let's not make that a hard no. You know, you never know what situation you're going to be in down the road. <laughs> and, and I'll be, but I, you know, I'll take it a step further, actually. How about you just don't save your shits? <laughs> <laughs> that that eliminates the possibility of eating it at all. How about this? Just just don't eat shit, okay? Da 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 da. The more you know, <laughs> you put the shit where it belongs: toilets, parking garages, and paper bags. <laughs> so then we cut, and there's a, a large Hummer, uh, the not a blowjob, the automobile pulls up, and the, on the front is this manly wrestler hood ornament. It pulls up to the radio station run by uh, Eugene Levy. The Hummer is owned by Lance, the guy who we talked about being gay. It's Will Ferrell. Then other manly cars pull up. There's this giant pickup truck, and there's a Trans Am. There's a classic rape van. There's also the Wagon Queen family truckster from National Lampoon's Vacation. And then all these cuckolded men pile out of their penis mobiles, led by Lance, Will Ferrell. And then they do this Broadway-style musical number. And it felt like one of those musical numbers you see during the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, where it just stops the flow of everything for no good reason whatsoever. Yeah, I, I don't care for musicals uh, to begin with, uh, even less so when there is also dancing accompanying it. The only musical that I really like is the one where a giant plant eats people. Which one is that? <laughs> Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> I know. <laughs> It's a Frank Oz classic. Here's what I'll say about this. I don't like this scene. I think it is a cheap and easy gag about Will Ferrell being gay and thus the musical number about how manly it is that they're hunting down Leon Phelps. I think all that shit is, is, is lazy comedy at best. But I will say, I think this scene is really well directed. And maybe it's just because I didn't care about anything that was happening on screen. This dance number fails in this movie to the same degree that the musical number in Billy Madison succeeds. Because in Billy Madison, Sandler's like like over-the-top musical number with the, you know, hallucination penguin and the singing nanny and the, you know, kind of the resurrected once-dead children's party clown. That is all so insanely over-the-top in Billy Madison that it makes sense in a movie that's just filled with unexpected non-sequiturs. Here, it's just a big fat question mark of like, what what is this? It, it feels like, uh, much like Ian Malcolm once said, uh, everyone was so busy asking if they could, no one ever stopped to ask if they should. And the answer to that question, Chad, I posit, is no. No, you should not. They, they dance their way up to Eugene Levy, and they're like, hey, we're looking for this guy. And he's like, yeah, that's Leon Phelps. Here's his address. Yeah, and he's got a big bag of, of fan mail that everybody loves him, which I'm like, well, then why aren't you trying to get him back on the air? He's so popular. Stupid. Because he's... Uh, the man. First of all, he's whitey, yeah. I guess. It just, it didn't make any sense. So the next scene, we cut to Leon in the dressing room of Academy Award-winning actress uh, Julianne Moore. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, who is playing, uh, she's like a stage actress or a showgirl or something. And then Leon thinks that she might be sweet thing. Because again, he's gone to a lot of other women that we didn't talk about. And um, she goes behind this dressing wall and she says like, hey, why don't we have a quickie? But only after she's dressed up as a clown. So Leon agrees to have sex with Julianne Moore in clown makeup. I don't know why this is in this movie. I, I mean, maybe because it seems odd that you would have sex with somebody in clown makeup. That seems odd unless you've been to a gathering of the Juggalos. And then in that case, it's odd if you're having sex with someone who's not donning clown makeup. I also like in this scene when he first approaches Julianne Moore in her dressing room and says that they did, and I quote, some pretty messed up junk. 
I think that's a pretty good description of a, an exploratory sexual relationship. <laughs> Especially for this guy. Uh-huh. But at the end of the day, this scene should not be in this movie whatsoever. <laughs> uh, our, our next scene, we get a reprieve of uh, the musical number from the VSA earlier as they now march to Leon's houseboat. Here they proceed to set it on fire. I, you know, I kind of wondered if this musical number is here because otherwise this is pretty much a racist lynch mob. And we're tiptoeing over into Mississippi burning territory. I also found it disingenuous that there's one black guy in this mob of angry all-white husbands to kind of help take the edge off of the racist undertones of this movie. Kind of like, remember in um, Surviving the Game when Ice-T is hunted down by um, like Rudger Hauer and Gary Busey and who else was in there? F. Murray Abraham, I think. Charles S. Dutton. It was the... That's right. Charles Dutton shows up because it's just like, hey, we're not racist. We're just rich assholes. Like, it's not white guys hunting down a black guy. It's a bunch of white guys and a black guy hunting down a black guy. So we're good, right? No, we're not. It's you. you it, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> anyway, they burn down Leon's houseboat and then they head over to Billy D. Williams bar. Lance hands Billy D. his business card, which that's important later because uh, it turns out that Lance, who's Will Ferrell, who's gay, it's his wife that's sweet thing. So... Whoops, now you know that. Lance tells Billy D that uh, they want to kill Leon, and who should come out of the back of the bar but Leon, who overhears the conversation. I don't know why Leon's in the back of the bar. Lance tells Billy D that they're going to cut off Leon's little pecker, and then Leon's like, I don't have a little dick, I've got a great big dick. And then Leon runs off and escapes on a city bus, and the angry mob is left with his black book that has all the names of the women that he's had sex with. None of what I just described in the last 45 seconds matters in it at all none of it does no the the big black book in this movie is the biggest mcguffin uh of the film it it matters so little and it feels like something that ought to be a thing i think they play on that when the herman's head guy is like why do we have this well it's, he's like well it's got all the names yeah but what does that matter he's like well because we have them now oh okay it, this this movie that really should be paint by numbers you you, you can't be commenting on Something that's really not that funny to begin with. So then Leon goes and sees that his houseboat is burned down. And then he um, he's all sad. And then he goes over to Julie's parents' house where I guess she lives now. Or maybe she's always lived. I don't know. And her parents open up the front door and they see Leon, again, a grown damn man sleeping on their doorstep. And they poke him with an umbrella. And he just like sticks his hand down the front of his pants and rubs his dick for like a good solid eight count. It's not like a scratch, scratch or like a quick adjust and I'm out. It's borderline is he masturbating? It is the kind of early morning, like, deep taint scratch that you only give in the privacy of a room in the woods, you know? <laughs> like, you're you're far away from the things a man when you're going that deep. If they don't know who he is, they should call the police immediately. If they do know who he is, same results. You know, you call the cops on this guy, but no, no, no. They invite him into the house and the parents are laughing at, you know, Leon's fifth grade education, you know, sexual exploits. Uh, did you notice that they had a Garfield cookie jar on their counter? I, I didn't notice that, but I kind of want one. I think I, I think my grandmother had one. Do you think your grandmother would let a black man like this come into her house after almost masturbating on her front doorstep to talk about sex with her? You could have stopped at let one in her house. <laughs> And the answer would have been no. I mean, this this was an old woman from Tennessee <laughs> who, who, hand to God, 
believed that that dinosaurs had been placed onto the earth as a cosmic gag by God to test the faith of the true believers. That's the kind of person that's going to be racist as shit. I saw your grandmother be suspect about letting you into the house a couple of times. <laughs> sure. But I'd been, in fairness, smoking the jazz cigarettes probably. So Julie comes downstairs and sees Leon's in, you know, her parents' house. And then Julie and Leon go up to her bedroom and on the wall of her bedroom is this weird picture of three polar bears just like hanging out. And then there's this weird oversized children's drawing of a leather daddy. Her bedroom is odd. Yeah, it's like if you grew up in, uh, if you were a 16 year old girl who had accidentally read the really dirty Anne Rice books and it just awakens something dark inside you maybe that's what happened maybe that's her thing like she's into humiliation the fact that this guy left her at the at, at the altar and she was forced to go to magic lester's bar and get drunk on rot gut whiskey that that is the culmination of her own low self-esteem that that's kind of what gets her off now I kind of want to meet her. <laughs> she does say in this scene that uh, in talking with Leon, after he says his life sucks, she says that she's never you know, seen him as the ladies man. Instead, she sees him as a lonely, misguided idiot, which are the kind of words you would want to use to describe the man of your dreams, according to your scenario, if that's what you're into. I've been called a lot worse. I think we all have. For some reason, they kiss at this scene I don't know why and then Leon feels this spark of true love and he says do that again and then they kiss again and you're like oh where's this going and the answer is nowhere because immediately Leon looks up and sees the image on the header of the stationery that Sweet Thing had used to write him this letter and it matches a logo for Deloon Security that was being used on the house. So essentially, Leon immediately remembers who Sweet Thing is. He jumps up and says, I'm rich, I'm rich. And then he immediately forgets about Julie. And Leon is about two things, money and getting laid. That's it. He's like Pat, but with more aspirational goals. Yes, and actually does take a redemptive turn, which Pat never does. He, he takes a redemptive turn as an alternative to having his dick cut off. Yeah, but... A threat of having your dick cut off will definitely make you reevaluate your life choices. This, I would say, is your end of act two. The discovery of who Honey DeLune is. Also, that we, for a moment there, Leon is the character that, in theory, we hope he will be. He, he's going to end up with Julia. On paper, this should be kind of a sweet scene where he says, you know, I really wish it had been you that wrote this letter. And because you're you're wonderful you're beautiful you're always kind and that leon is close to being the person that he is capable of being the way that julia describes it is when i looked at you i saw someone who was capable of of being a good man and so leon presented with this information where he can both get laid and get money reverts immediately back to the person he was at the beginning of the film. And even though he's only really started to become a good guy in the past three and a half minutes, he totally dispenses with that and then runs off to uh, get in touch with Honey DeLune, a.k.a. Tiffany, not yet Amber Thiessen. He's a shithead and he's a self-serving asshole. I, I still don't buy the whole switcheroo. I'm not saying it's done well. I'm saying it's done. And that's something. 
right. So Leon calls up Sweet Thing. And as you said, it's Saved by the Bell's own Tiffany Amber Thiessen. Uh, he calls up uh, Tiffany Sweet Thing Thiessen. And she's in this bubble bath that's like the size of a swimming pool. She gets all hot and bothered hearing from Leon. And she says, you should come over soon. But she's got some things to tie up. And then they're going to go on a trip around the world or some bullshit. And then Lance, the the gay husband, he comes in and he's wearing this uh, wrestling singlet and his gay wrestling partner, Brian, waltzes in. And they proceed to wrestle in the bathroom as uh, Sweet Thing Thiessen watches and, you know, just clear disappointment of you know, what's going on with their life. Leon goes and gets a new suit of clothes for a hundred bucks. And then he goes to the bar to say goodbye to all of his low life friends. And then he's spouting off all this worthless bullshit about how he's had this life of just being, you know, kind of a low life degenerate. And then how that should be paid off with a big undeserving payday. And then who comes waltzing in, but Julie. And she overhears Leon say that he's finally found true happiness. And Leon, uh, as he's proceeding to leave the bar, she just punches him in the face. It doesn't make any sense to your point earlier of how they should have had a sweet moment and a connection between the two she just comes in and just assaults this guy because he's not with her is that what's going on well yeah and that he immediately walked out on her as soon as he had the first whiff of hey here's this thing i've been pursuing i realized how you know shallow that pursuit was and now i want to be with this girl that's been sticking by my side and then given the first taste of oh no you really can have all this money he ditches her and that's why she hits him again i don't think any of this is done well but there is something there how about this instead of um i'm not sticking with the woman who was beside by my side the whole time how about i'm choosing not to be with someone who is prone to fits of violence and an inability to express you know basic human emotion in a healthy fashion and then who also doesn't proceed to walk directly behind a bar that she does not own, grab a bottle of booze to begin self-medicating all of this emotional distress. She's a mess. I wouldn't stick yeah. around for that. I don't care how what kind of a spark you got smooching on her up in her bedroom. Maybe he's into just fucking girls that are teenagers in their native environment. He is into messy women. That is for sure. I like the next thing where after, uh, so Leon leaves and then Billy D starts to offer up some, you know, some of his velvet truth to Julie and Julie just gives him this look that is like, you know, say one word and this bottle of old granddad is going up your ass sideways, old man. <laughs> I mean, like he doesn't even utter a word and he immediately just kind of like puts his hands up and backs off. He's clearly a man who knows how to read a woman, even when she isn't saying a word. Yeah. Well, you know, he's, he's a lover, Billy D. You can see that in his eyes you can see it in everything he does mm -hmm. leon goes over to sweet things house and she opens the door like with her breast i guess because they're huge and they're hanging out and she's decked out head to toe in lingerie to get things going leon brings her some comically large plastic flowers and a box of mexican wine which <laughs> that's funny um <laughs> I got a laugh out of a box of Mexican wine. That's a combination of words I hadn't heard before. There's a disturbing parallel in this scene to the Wayne's World 2 Honey Hornet scene. First of all, they're both named Honey. And let's be honest, yeah. that's no accident. Callers west of the Rockies. <laughs> that, that she implies that like, hey, you might need to kill my husband so we can be together. But she doesn't say that. She Well, she says that they might have to kill him. Yeah, she absolutely does. 
I wasn't paying attention to that part. I mean, well, yeah, it's late <laughs> in the movie. Why would you? It, you like it, by this point, you know it's not very good. I do know that when Leon walks in, he just starts claiming everything in the house. He's like, yeah, that vase is mine. This table's mine. This house is mine. She tells him to go make a drink. And then on the coffee table, there's just like stacks of cash that looks like it belongs, I don't know, like in a the counting room of like a drug dealer's house or basement casino or something. She's ready to fuck right now. Uh, but unbeknownst to her, all of those manmobiles show up outside and they're looking for Leon at the house. And then she rips off Leon's leopard print underwear and then she sniffs it casually and throws it over her shoulder, which I was like, maybe that's her turn on. Like, remember? Uh, how Kim Cattrall was in Porky's. I was thinking more uh, Jeff Bridges in The Contender when he sniffs his bowling shoe. Yeah, but that's his own shoe. That's a different thing. I also wondered, I was like, maybe that's how she checks for like the early signs of VD. You know, just a little <laughs> sniff test. Give, give it a, a quick sniff and an eyeball to see if you see anything moving. Do you think Michael Douglas could have saved himself a world of hurt if, he, if he'd done a sniff test or two on Catherine Zeta-Jones? <laughs> Again, I really feel like we're we're victim shaming a bit with Catherine Zeta-Jones. Maybe that's my own fantasies come to life, uh, but, but she is... She is a, a sultry Latina, and I dig it. And I think <laughs> I think Michael Douglas should be on his knees every day, thanking God that his wrinkly old scrawny body ever got to climb on top of that goddess. East of the Rockies. <laughs> scrawny bodies, west of the Rockies. How many aliens have you, <laughs> you been on top of? Uh, sweet Thing drops down to to give him like a blow job or whatever. And then, uh, Leon is, says, Hey, Macarena. Cause this is the nineties. <laughs> Please don't do that. He tells sweet thing that he can't do with her. Cause he's in love with Julie, which we're like, okay, fine. So maybe that little smooch spark meant something. And then all of the husbands come in and Lance who's gay and his Will Ferrell catches his wife on top of Leon, the ladies man. And then Leon stands up and all of these white guys and that black guy in the back, they see his great big penis. And then Barry, the husband, he screams out, kill him. But then Lance says, no, because Lance wants to wrestle Leon. Lance, a white guy, wants to wrestle Leon, a black guy, with what one assumes is the largest penis that Lance has ever seen. Is that an accurate description? Yes, you're you're absolutely right. Speaking of my pal Hal, the It's Yucky guy from earlier, also has the best comment about the ladies man's dick, where he just goes, hmm, that's a beauty. <laughs> <laughs> he is quietly the funniest character of this movie it turns out lance tells all these dudes that he's waited his whole life and that quote gentlemen he's mine i'm kind of glad that tarantino didn't take a pass on this script like he did for it's pat because i got a feeling that we would go to a basement you get a mouth gag there'd be some nipple clips there'd be some uncomfortable racist retribution i think that the whole ending of the movie would have really gone down a much darker path Right, Will Ferrell just tapping his fingers on the hood of a gimp as he's watching Leon get oiled up. Pulling out a bullwhip and cracking it on somebody. We're just like, whoa, what are you doing? You know, just please stop it. I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> so we're back at the bar and surprise, surprise, Julie's getting drunk. And then Candy, the other drunk, comes up to Julie. She tells her that, quote, the best way to deal with men is booze and penicillin, which we all knew that about Candy. <laughs> I think Candy's had a pretty tough life. And she seems like a character that after maybe like 30 minutes of kind of getting past the superficial comedic facade of her character, 
that you would really see that she has had a lifetime of physical and, you know, sexual, mental, and clearly, you know, substance abuse. Every night that Candy has ends the same way, which is with her crying. Alone or with someone else. It's a sad, tragic life. I mean, it's played for laughs here in the bar because that's, you know, she's still in the early stages of her drinking for the night. Like, it's not 4 a.m. yet when the you know the depressive effects of alcohol have brought her to a place where all she can think about is that one sultry summer day in her uncle's basement when he closed the door behind him and said he went to take some like fun pictures of her i would like to watch a movie about candy (laughs) it's yeah it's called the butterfly effect (laughs) so Billy D tells Julie that Lance and his fun time, happy go lucky singing troupe of lynching pals. She say, he says that, you know, for some random reason, there's a single black guy with them and they all came in and now they're off to kill Leon. I guess you would call them the enemies of Bill organization. Head off to go save Leon from this situation that you can only assume will include burning crosses. <laughs> we cut back to the Lance mansion where. There's an outdoor wrestling mat set up for uh, both competitive sp- sport and what I assume is personal sexual gratification. Uh, Will Ferrell is wearing this blue singlet, and with his dyed blonde hair um, when he's standing in the ring, he looks a lot like, remember when Robin Williams jumped into the boxing ring in Robert Altman's Popeye when they were boxing on that ship? Mm-hmm. He's just standing there ready to go. Luckily, Leon is now wearing clothes because I fully expected him to be dragged outside in the nude, writhing around, you know, muttering slightly coherent pleas for help. And then Lance just starts lathering up with wrestling oils. And he tells Leon that he's like, I'm going to enjoy this. The whole gag here, obviously, is like, I'm going to get all oiled up and I'm going to press my my sweaty flesh against Leon Phelps. And it's going to be sensual and let me say this about their handling of the gay overtones here at no point is it ever pointed at as being wrong it's just that he's clearly repressed and and not to get too far ahead of us here but at at a certain point leon is kind of giving his big speech and he kind of begins with like First of all, Lance, you are clearly gay. Now, there is nothing wrong with that, but you are. And and he's right, but it's also, like, I don't, it's, it's uncomfortable because you never know if, if it's being played for a laugh. And if it's not, what's the deal? I mean, it, it is clearly being played for a laugh, but it's not at the expense of, like, that homosexuality is somehow evil or wrong. It's just that he's in such denial about it. And it doesn't ever feel like that joke pays off in any way. If it kind of ended with him like leaving with Brian or something, it would be like, oh, okay, well, everybody kind of found their happiness at the end of this movie. I do not feel that it is a positive portrayal of a gay person. <laughs> it's not, you're, I, you're right. It's just not as obviously homophobic as something like It's Pat. Hate to keep going back to that old punching bag, but that is a far more insulting film than something like The Ladies Man, where yes, it's played for a cheap laugh, but it doesn't feel as pointed or something. Well, Leon does beat him up. I mean, before they wrestle, he punches him in the stomach like eight times and then hits him in the face. So he does get slapped around a little bit. Well, sure. But not because he's gay. I guess the alternative would be arguably that Leon was going to get raped. Right. That, I mean, 
<laughs> that's my read of it. Like it's self-defense. You know what? Now I'm coming around to your way of thinking on this one. I, yeah, I think that it's a little more gross than I gave it credit for because there is an implied like interracial rape scene that could have happened if things had gone a different way for Leon here of a man that arguably has the most glorious cock that any of them have ever seen. So it's a beauty says how it is a beauty. He's Canadian. Uh, Leon gives this speech about how all of the women that he fucked secretly loved their husband or explicitly loved their husband, but he has one woman that he really loves and it's Julie. And lo and behold, the, the band of drunken lowlifes have come up over the hillside and Julie overhears Leon say that he loves her. Why? I don't know. What? Who cares? Um, Leon's heartfelt speech about how he found true love keeps the rage of all these angry white guys and that one black guy from killing him. And then husband Barry rants for a few minutes about how this is all bullshit. And then he's like brandishing this, like, I don't know, it's like this checkoff brand handgun in this final act of desperation <laughs> and he's going to kill him. But then he just throws the gun on the mat and just gives up and concedes that eh, Leon's a good guy. And then the angry mob starts to disperse and I guess they're going to go light some torches and, you know, put on some hoods. But then Lance no and he grabs the gun and picks it up to kill leon and lance aims the gun at him three different times which you fully expect he's going to shoot him with this gun but then he doesn't he just like drops it and he apologizes and says yeah we're cool too yeah it feels like we're just padding the runtime here or something it's like why why are we going through the motions of this we just did this with the barney character it was diffused and now we're doing it again with this character with the exact same result yeah i think the reason for that is that this movie is not very good <laughs> yeah that is not good so now for some reason billy d is up on the balcony with tiffany sweet thing Thiessen, uh, up in this mansion and he starts to give some more velvet narration but then sweet thing is like hey let's get in here and fuck which good for her that's billy d williams right then we get a recap of how leon somehow just got back on the radio and he's the spokesman for some brand of pickled hog balls there's a joke where leon's on the air taking a call from hillary clinton and he references bill clinton to cap it off everyone's favorite alcoholic and a walking case of the shake scrap iron comes in pushing a baby carriage which what one assumes is leon and julie's baby because when we see it, it has a big afro like leon i don't know why they would let scrap iron be their nanny i mean he collects his own shit in a jar if anything scrap iron needs a nanny to look after him but they didn't ask me yeah I, the reversal of this character like not only is leon now hosting the most popular radio show in america the advice he's giving is legitimately not awful you know it's not just wang oriented fuck advice it it's more day-to-day -day, here's how you pursue your habit well we hear one call but it, that one call is way better than anything else <laughs> yeah and the last line is like he says that when you know you're in love because you feel it in your heart and your pants and then he gives a smile and a big thumbs up which is again probably going to be a on-air prop for going up somebody's asshole and then we roll credits and that's the ladies man who's that lady plays or if it didn't it should have i guess i don't know to your point this is not a great movie and i will as soon as this conversation is over i will not have recalled i ever saw this movie but i i don't think it is anywhere in the, in the, in the ballpark of an it's pat level like i will never forget watching it's pat because it was like somebody punching me in the soul for 87 minutes. I think the reason that I say that it's it's in the same kind of quadrant of its pat is that I just, in going through it, even when you were able to come in and pencil in an end of act one and act two, I just felt that 
the, this whole movie just meanders and wanders from the Hugh Hefner thing to the, is this his girlfriend? No, it's not. Wait, they've lost a job. The movie's about getting a job. No, wait, it's about finding sweet thing. No, wait, it's about eating shit out of a jar. No, wait, it's about an angry racist lynch mob that somehow recruited a black guy to make it not racist. It just, the whole thing was just, it, it was unfocused and there's musical numbers and all this stuff and it wasn't that funny. What I wanted to see was more Leon Phelps just being this lovable dim-witted fountain of ill-conceived sexual advice yeah. and it just didn't do that for me at all yeah i like tim meadows i like this character i remember back in the day watching it and when a ladies man sketch came on i was genuinely happy i've gone back and rewatched a lot of those sketches that are available online and they're funny he's funny i just think that this character in this movie is a victim of of a lot of what we're discussing in this season of take this character and go make a movie and it just it doesn't work that well yeah and, and you're right i think the the sketches uh one thing that was missing from this was that caller that calls up and it sounds like it's going to be sexy and then it takes that hard right turn into something weird and crazy where he'll stop him and go yeah that is not good <laughs> <laughs> like those are my favorite moments and tim meadows absolutely deserves better than this movie he's he's really a funny actor he did a ton of stuff on snl that uh, i i thought was great and this is a, a real misfire but the one bit of comfort that i take from is, is I won't remember it. <laughs> Lost memory of the ladies' man east of the Rockies. You're on the air. Yeah, UFO stole my my memories of the ladies' man. In our final episode. Bo, would you care to uh, to give a teaser for that one? Yeah, Chad, it is the movie no one asked for, uh, A Night at the Roxbury, based on sketches that weren't that funny to begin with and got progressively worse, leading up to a movie that is far closer to its path in terms of sheer shittiness and not the fun pickled kind, Chad. The kind of shit that you happen to see on a hot day and you think, that ain't a dog, sir. That's the kind of poop we're talking about. Maybe this is uh, something to think about until our next episode is there another sketch that has been done on saturday night live or maybe from this era that you think would have been a worse sketch to turn into a movie i've thought about this question as a matter of fact i'm glad you asked uh we did not have that plan we've never worked together before but uh mango i think would make a worse movie yeah mango would have been terrible debbie downer would have been really really bad i that's one that came up and i think you could make a better debbie downer movie than you can a night at the roxbury movie are there any sketches that that you would have loved to have seen turned into a, a, a feature film you know that one's a little tougher i i can't really think of one that maybe canteen boy <laughs> just to see how dark that got well i think that was the water boy wasn't it that was what that was yeah with a whole lot less molestation i would have liked to have seen fred garvin male prostitute as a movie i'd still like to see that with dan Aykroyd doing that oh my god if he just came out of retirement or <laughs> vodka production or whatever he's doing to to do fred garvin the in the later years i would be down for that one we haven't really touched on was that ed grimley again who wasn't a native saturday night live character that he was a holdover from sctv had his own animated series during the late 80s and maybe early 90s it was successful it was funny i mean yeah. if you liked ed grimley but that had a certain level of success as well so but that feels right for that character i, I wondered how much of that was 
sort of a springboard of, you know, we can't make an Ed Grimley movie, but we could do an Ed Grimley animated series. So we could do a, a ladies man series of erotic novels. That's probably the best form that that character could have taken. She took his wang and she put it in her in her hands and showed him how soft and incredibly touch the wang went inside of her lady hole. More Wayne calls west of the Rockies. You're on the air. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We will leave it at that. Please come back and see us again. Like like us, uh, rate us, review us, share us with a friend. You can contact us at pick6movies at gmail.com, Facebook, Twitter, all the other places, you know, you know how to find us. This is probably inappropriately late. Uh, I was just going to ask an around earlier who might have a question, speaking of emails and whatnot. If you send us an, e- an email with a question, we'll probably answer it. So somebody asked a question about the show, and the, the question was, Chad, how we pick the themes for the seasons. And I, I didn't answer there. I'll answer here. It's largely pun-based. <laughs> in the sense that a lot of times we just come up with a dumb title and and then find movies that fit the dumb title we've come up with to be fair you do so much more in terms of thinking about what the next season should be what is your strategium for such a thing probably the biggest thing that we do is look at what group of movies we would be most interested in diving a little bit deeper, whether it's related to the writers or the directors or the actors or some sort of historical element that will help us understand it a little bit better and then maybe provide more context once we do the exhaustive walkthroughs uh, that we do as well. Question answered and happy 10th episode. We are, we are, we have reached the the decade i i think this is the question anniversary as a matter of fact the 10th anniversary of a podcast the official gift that you give is nothing so here you are thank you hope it's the right color (laughs) it doesn't fit (laughs) come back and see us again Uh, we got one more to go and uh a lot of other seasons that are that are all planned out so uh thanks for listening everybody good night